Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. Uh, Marley has done it again. She's been uh, doing some research trying to identify those opportunities for us to learn about the importance of estate planning, uh, to look at some of the application, and I should add the misapplication of estate planning. So we've, uh, we're continuing this series, and this week we have a name, as always, I hope, that you readily recognize. What is this name? You can give us the introduction. Yeah. Marley. So this week we're covering Marlon Brando. Um, obviously, we all know him best for The Godfather and um, A Streetcar Named Desire, which were both of his Academy Award winning roles for Best Actor. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's get into it. <laughs> he, it. You know, it really is amazing um, how successful he was as an actor. Mm-hmm. Some of us can forget that, even those of us who are old enough to remember him in his heyday, it's still easy to forget how big he was in the industry. Yes, he was huge. And I think just a lot of movies that he's done are so timeless, too. Yeah. Everybody thinks of The Godfather. I mean, it's it's referred to so many different ways in so many different instances. Uh, Godfather is probably will be his most famous role. <laughs> yes, but, you know, I'm surprised, and I think this is correct, that he did not actually win an Academy Award for On the Waterfront. No, he didn't. Yeah. yeah I looked that up, too. He yeah, it was one of those really great mm-hmm. movies that, that he was in. A little depressing, but it was a good movie. And in that, that role of Stanley Kowalski mm-hmm. uh, in Streetcar Named Desire, uh, he was—Brando was something special as— as an actor. Yes. And uh, he was difficult, though, to pinpoint. I mean, he he had a lot of strong opinions on different things. Mm -hmm. He was very active in terms of social causes. Um, He, you could find him saying things that were very controversial, but, but most people now believe that, you know, he really was a person of character, that he really cared about about other people, especially the down and out. Yes. The he, down and out in almost every category. Mm-hmm, he definitely did. I mean, even when Martin Luther King Jr. died, um, he turned down a role so that he could go participate in civil rights activist movements. Yeah. So that says anything about his character. <laughs> yeah, and and you may not have been born even at this time. You were not. When um, 1973, he was getting the Academy Award for Godfather. Mm-hmm. I'm just about positive as Godfather. And uh, he didn't show up. He didn't show up because he was upset about this demonstration that was going on at, mm-hmm. at Wounded Knee. And there was mm-hmm. the Wounded Knee was apparently this this area that was once an Indian reservation, mm-hmm. or or it was an important place, a sacred place. The Indians where many had died in, due to some you know terrible atrocity by by white settlers. And so he was he was very up in arms about what had happened to Native Indians. Uh, and so so upset was he that he sent somebody who, I think she was in fact a Native Indian, but somewhere I read that she may not have been, but she was dressed in full Indian gear and she showed up 
to express his protest mm-hmm. about the way Indians were dealt with in Hollywood and and maybe in film production generally. So uh, he was a guy that, that was very passionate about a lot of things. Yes. And he moved from different – over different stages of his life, he had a focus on different issues. Mm-hmm. But, but the consistent – the thread that ran true was his conviction that – you know, people who are down and out or poor that he wanted to do what he could. Yeah. And he did he did put his money where his mouth was yeah. in in many ways. He was he was famous for giving away lots of money and uh, he could have been a richer man than he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he he definitely wasn't driven just by money. He turned down roles that he felt didn't project the right image. Mm-hmm. Or he would seek out roles that he thought made a point that he wanted made, but they may not have been a good movie. So um, he he definitely had principles. And whether you, you agreed with his politics or not, you had to concede that that he had conviction. Yes, yeah. And, and they were well-intentioned convictions. Mm-hmm. He definitely didn't let, you know, Hollywood take away that those morals that he had set for himself or anything like that. Like, we run into that with a lot of actors, actresses, which is kind of sad, but he was very much his own person, and he had a voice and he wanted to be heard. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen... We know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. Yeah, and he uh, he came from humble circumstances mm-hmm. from the Midwest, Nebraska. Nebraska, yes. Uh, he made his way to New York as a young man. He mm-hmm. had had an interest in acting, and and um, he, even though he was an athlete, wasn't he? Did yeah, he, he was an athlete for a bit. Um, I feel I, I think that was uh, through his you know younger years into college, and then he moved on from that. Yeah, yeah. I think he had an injury, in fact, uh, to his knee that that made him what was called four F. Mm-hmm. He wasn't fit to serve in the military. Mm-hmm. So he get, went to New York in this very bold, determined act to become an actor. That was his mm-hmm. intention when he went to New York, and he got into the acting school there and uh, studied under some of the greats, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I definitely think he wanted a platform in some way, somehow, and he found it through acting when he wasn't able to do anything else. Yeah, and he uh, he the, the school he went to, was a proponent of the Stanislav method, which is a very controversial thing with actors. Some very fine actors are very dismissive about Stanislav. Stanislav is where you spend a great deal of time developing uh, your understanding of the character, Mm -hmm. both internally, internal motivations, Mm -hmm. as well as external factors that are relevant to their role or the Mm -hmm. way they're acting or, or speaking. So Stanislav is very deliberate, very focused, um, very preparatory, and there are others who, who just who've been successful actors. I'm trying to think of an example who was very critical of Stanislav, somebody who kind of rolled into into acting, and they felt that no, that's just that's just a lot of hogwash, and you can simply 
you know, if you're a good actor and you know who the character is, you can sit down and do it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to spend this time thinking and investing into the state of mind, et cetera. So, but Stanislav, clearly some of the best actors we've known, you know, from the 20th century oh. were proponents of that. Yes. And came yeah. out of that program. I think James Dean was among them. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, uh, he definitely was very, very serious about acting and doing it correctly and and even had the reputation of being a bad boy on the set, didn't he? <laughs> yes. Yep. A bad boy on the set and sometimes a bad boy outside of the set too. Yeah, yeah. He he was we'll talk a little bit about his womanizing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um but as to as to his behavior on the set, some have defended him and like Dustin Hoffman, I think, who and said that uh, that yes, he was difficult from the standpoint of directors. Mm-hmm. They thought that he was a lot of trouble to deal with. But the way that that it was explained by Dustin Hoffman is that th- this behavior was not so much the fact that he's trying to be rebellious or disrespectful. He did things that were intended to prepare him for his role. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, conversations he would be having with a cameraman or or somebody who was uh, off the set, you know, a worker who may be nearby, and he's having these conversations during scenes and whatnot, and he's trying to get himself in his frame of mind to where he can speak conversationally for, for example, that particular scene that was mm-hmm. about to be done. He could speak conversationally in a way that that he may not be able to simply coming in off the street, sitting down and doing the doing the the filming yes so i mean it's very psychological and he was but he was very much into that Mm -hmm. which i think that's what definitely set him apart from a bunch of other actors actresses he wanted to be the person that he was playing and he made himself like you said that person that he was playing in all sorts of different ways and he lived as them for however long he was filming for which definitely i mean if you watch his movies if you even know anything about the godfather that's why it's so relevant is because it was such a good movie because he played that role so well and people you know they think about him and they think about him just simply as that role so just an italian mobster um and that's that's have how good you he have was. you seen Apocalypse Now? Yes, I have. Yeah, he my what I've heard a story on that. Um, the story that I heard on that was that he showed up on the set a hundred pounds overweight. Well, <laughs> but, well, they probably knew he was some of that, but a lot overweight, a lot more than they expected. Mm-hmm. So maybe he was an additional fifty plus pounds. So he shows up on set, and that wasn't the character that they envisioned for Captain Kurtz. Mm -hmm. And Captain Kurtz is kind of this man who had gone crazy during the course of war. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this was from Conrad's Heart of Darkness that that was loosely, Apocalypse Now was loosely based on. So apparently they had to film all the scenes from from like this chest up. Yeah, they really went to a lot of trouble to, it was a big inconvenience. Now, moviegoers aren't going to consciously no. notice that but it did restrict how they filmed him and but he was he definitely pulled that part off yeah oh yeah overweight or not he definitely yeah. did he pulled it off and it was uh it was a spooky character mm-hmm. and and you uh, you you can't imagine anybody else playing that role no no and i th- i think that goes for most of his roles you just try to imagine someone else in it and you're like 
this doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so we've talked a little bit about about the actor, which many of many of you, our viewers, those of you who are over sixty, which I always presume is the substantial majority of you, you you could probably add many things to this discussion about Marlon Brando. I mean, he's an icon mm-hmm. of the last 50, 60, oh. 70 years. Yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about, though, let, let's lead into his family and his life, and then we'll come to the estate planning question, and then we'll come to his death. Mm-hmm. So tell us about his family life. Yeah. Adult family life. So uh, his first marriage was pretty short-lived. Um, it was to Anna Koshvi. And they were married in 1957. They had their first son, or his first son, Christian Brando, in 1958. And then they were divorced shortly after in 1959. Um, right after that, he, you know, kind of moved into his marriage with uh, Mavita Castaneda in 1960. And they had two kids together, um, Miko and Rebecca. But... They annulled that marriage in 1968, um, but before that, in 1962, he got married again. And so what I was trying to find out with that is, you know, what happened there, what took them so long. And what I found was that um, his second wife was still legally married to somebody else. And I'm not sure why they drug it out that whole entire time, but that's why he was able to go and get married in 1962. Um, And in 1962, he married Tarita um, Tepari—excuse me— these names, and we're going to see this throughout <laughs> throughout this discussion today. There's lots of difficult names. Tarita Terapaya. <laughs> Terapaya. Yes, um, and that was his longest marriage for ten years, and they got divorced in 1972. But they had two biological children together, um, Simon and Cheyenne. Her first name was Tarita. She was named after her mother, but she went by Cheyenne. And then at that same time, he also adopted. Um, Tarita's daughter from a previous marriage and then Tarita's niece as well. So at this point, he had lots of kids, um, you know, he had adopted two and then they got divorced also. Um, And I couldn't necessarily find many reasons for his divorce. I think, you know, he just kind of married them, was happy for a while. And then, you know, it just it just ebbed and flowed. So he was actually divorced twice Mm -hmm. and then annulled the second marriage. Uh, And he had 11 11 legal children, uh, four that were adopted? Um, Yes, uh, excuse me, three that were adopted. So then he went on to, he never married again, but he went on to have a relationship with his housekeeper, uh, Maria Cristina Ruiz. And with her, he had three different children, uh, Nina, Jonathan, and Timothy. And then he also, uh, and I'm not sure why this happened. I couldn't really find a whole lot into it because, you know, adoptions are pretty private. Um, But he Mm -hmm. also adopted Petra Brando Corval, and that was the daughter of his assistant, Caroline Barrett, and novelist um, James Clavell. And he adopted her at age 14. So I'm not sure if something happened in their marriage and they, you know, they just weren't fit to have a child at that point. So he took her over or what happened with that. But that was the final child that he adopted. And uh, he was living, um, a significant amount of his time was spent in the, on a French Polynesian island. That yeah. He, did he buy the entire yeah. island? Yeah. So in 1966, um, he paid $200,000 for a Polynesian, French Polynesian island um, named Tishora. 
Tashora. Tashora, yeah. And um, this was at a time when $200,000 was a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he, he would have paid what would be the equivalent of several million, maybe maybe three or four yeah. or more million. Right now, that's a two-bedroom house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the world has changed. And, and so he intended, though, to spend a good part of the balance of his life there, which mm-hmm. he did to some extent. Yeah, in his later years, he stayed there quite a bit. I think, um, you know, when he bought it, he was still filming. He was still with his family. His kids were still young, so he didn't get there quite as often as he wanted to. But he kept it as a private island up until his death, um, spent his last couple of years there. And then he died in California, as we were discussing, because um, he went back to be in his home there with more of his family and... And that was in passed. Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. That's correct. So his main homes then, I guess we would say, for most of his adult life would have been either in French Polynesia or Santa Monica. Yes, yeah. Um, and, of course, during most of his active filming life, when he was doing movies much more regularly than he was spending the bulk of his time in California. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about his relationship with his kids. He was a kind of a strange person in many ways, but yeah. he seemed to have a positive relationship with his kids as far as we can tell. Yeah, there wasn't a bunch of negative that I could, you know, that I read or anything like that, um, besides with Christian and Cheyenne. So what happened with Christian was that um, Cheyenne was with a guy and they were, he, she got pregnant with his child and from what I read um, and from what, you know, the news told everybody, they were in Brando's house and her boyfriend slapped her and then Christian kind of freaked out and shot and killed him. Um, he did do 10 years in prison for that, but he, f- he did five, excuse okay. me. He was um, sentenced to 10, but only did five. And so I think that kind of made that relationship definitely rocky because eventually he was written out of the will. Um, and then Cheyenne actually committed suicide in 1996, sadly. And But other than that, all of the relationships with his kids were pretty good. Um, he had Petra as an assistant, his adopted daughter. And I think that, you know, I don't think he had very, like, super close relationships with any particular one. But I think he was close to all of them in, you mm-hmm. know, a healthy manner. And there wasn't any drama or anything like that in the family. Yeah, yeah. He came to the rescue pretty much, or he came to the defense, rather, of his son, Christian, yes. during this incident, which I think occurred in the 70s. I'm yes, it did. And I believe that's only why he why he was only charged for, you know, 10 years. Um, it, was, because, it was charged manslaughter, I think. Yes, yeah, because— you you know, he was protecting his sister and his dad came to his defense and said this was in self-defense of everybody. Yeah, yeah. And uh, his dad, as I recall, testified and and paid for his lawyer fees, mm-hmm. which was, is no small thing. Yeah, no, that would have been very expensive. Yeah. Uh, so getting off with manslaughter in which you're predictably out in five years when you've, when you've shot somebody and there are circumstances where it didn't exactly look like a crime of passion. Mm-hmm there was opportunity for consideration, which is important when you're distinguishing between manslaughter, as particularly when it's intentional. We know he intended to kill him. Well, actually, the argument, I think that the first statement that was given by Cheyenne mm-hmm. was that it was accidental. He didn't mean 
for the gun to go off. Yes. Yeah. I think he was just pointing it at him. And then that's what they said What was that it was accidental from there. Like it was more of a, you know, get out of our house right now. But then that happened. Yeah. But I don't know. Jury's off. I know. Skeptical. I was like, I don't want to speculate what's there wasn't very many homes in the neighborhood. It was really like Jack Nicholson was the owned the other two homes in the neighborhood. And he said he didn't hear anything. He was actually there at that time. But, um, you know, the police did what they could with all of that information. And that's what came of it. Yeah. And uh, kind of wrapping up with Christian, he actually died in 08. Yes, that's correct. Four years after his yeah. father's death. Was it some sort of cancer? Um, it was some sort of cancer. I, I can't remember what kind. So it's just, it's interesting that he didn't live much, that much longer than his dad. No. And I'm wondering, I mean, you know, stuff happens after your parents die. So that might've been a factor in it. He, he might've just let his health go to the wayside, but it is really sad that he only died four years after him. Yeah. And so when we think about, um, Marlon as this sort of patriarch in the family who, to some extent, all of his family had some dependence on him. Mm-hmm. Not that they were simply living off dad. They all tried to pursue careers, as I understand it. A number yes. in acting. Yes. A couple of them acted, yeah. including Christian and maybe not Cheyenne. Well, the uh, the grants, there's a granddaughter, Cheyenne, isn't there? Yes, that's correct. There's a granddaughter, Cheyenne, who pursued a role in acting as well. Um, I and f- she's I th- a model? Yeah, I think a lot of them went into, you know, industries like that or similar industries or he provided them with jobs like Petra. Um, but I really just, I think he cared about his family a lot. It says a lot when you adopt three different children. Um, and One of them 14 years yeah, old. Yeah, yeah. And not even from anybody you were married to, um, just from your assistant, because you saw that they were probably struggling. But I, I definitely think that says a lot about his character as well and that he was very caring. And, you know, it, even if he didn't come off as a family man 24-7, I, I feel like he was. Yeah. So my expectation is that he... And I think this is clear that he helped at least mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the financial support of his entire family pretty much while he was alive, some more than others and maybe not continuously as to all. Um, he did pretty well financially. Yes. Yes, he did. Even, you know, he like you said, he donated a lot. He could have been richer than he was. But um, when he passed, his estate was estimated to be around two, excuse me, twenty one point six million. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of money then, and it doesn't really reflect though uh, what what came to be true later, and that's mm-hmm. that like the Elvis Presley phenomenon we've talked about, where an estate that at the time is not valued nearly as high as it in fact turns out to be, and in Elvis's case, I mean the value of his estate at death was, as I recall, it may even been you know, less than 10 million Mm -hmm. or whatever the number was. But we know that by the time it was handed over to his daughter, Lisa Marie, that it had north of 100 million bucks. So the thing about people who are icons is now we know that the value of their their brand, the value of their name, their likeness, their image, these things, this is – it called intellectual property, and mm-hmm. these things have value, and they have more value now with an internet than they've ever had before. There's more ways to use all that branding and likeness, and uh, and now we're finding that that people who pass away, such as Marlon Brando, who was far less 
famous, I would argue, than Elvis Presley, but clearly is an icon. He's up there with uh, Steve McQueen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve McQueen, I'm sure his estate is worth a lot of money now, a lot yeah. more than anybody ever thought it would be at the time of his death. So um, we know, for example, that there was how much in earnings in the last so um, it is said that it generates around nine hundred million. Or excuse me, nine million in revenue every single year. His estate and his right. likeness. So think about that: a twenty million dollar estate, supposedly worth twenty twenty one million, and it's generating nine million dollars. That's that tells you that the value of that principle of that estate of that intellectual property, whatever portion that was of the $21 million. And maybe that wasn't given much value among those mm-hmm. assets. We don't know. There's, there, We'll talk about this in a minute, the extent to which we're limited about getting information. But but you can, you can be sure that if it's throwing off that much, that the net number is going to be pretty substantial because the nature of money that flows through intellectual property is that it's like writing computer code. It's almost all profit. So um, that's the beauty of intellectual property. When you write a song or a movie or, or you, you uh, uh, write a, a novel, for example, that becomes a movie, then the money that you come in isn't money you're actively earning. Mm-hmm. It's like dividends or interest. It, it's passive income you know, whenever you, you create intellectual property like that. Yeah. Uh, so, so I would suggest that the value of that estate today would be probably 40, 50 million. Yeah. And his executors, I'm sure, work very, very hard to protect his likeness and make sure that nobody's using it in the wrong way and they're making yeah. money off of it still. And there's been litigation afterwards over yes, that. Yes, yeah. Who was it that was using it? Um, it was with Madonna. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, so she uh, she felt that she shouldn't have to pay as much as the estate was demanding? Yeah, they demanded 20000 from her, um, and she had paid, you know, other actors— um, for their likeness, and she had only paid around five hundred, or excuse me, five thousand for them, and they demanded twenty thousand after she used his likeness, and she kind of balked at that because she was like, "No way!" But that was settled. Unfortunately, we don't know the end of it because it was settled more privately. Um, but she paid something. I, I'm assuming mm-hmm. it was somewhere near the twenty thousand. And I think she had actually used it before she had gotten permission. Yes, Is that correct. Yes, that's and, correct. That's why they went after her. Yeah, and so that's reason there was litigation that went on for a number of years that was ultimately settled. But uh, the fact is that they were demanding a lot of money for use of that name and it was uh, or, or likeness. And that was also related to her tour, wasn't it? Yes. Um, she used him, I believe it was somewhere in, you know, like a music video or just like on the screens or something like that. Okay. But that's where um, it popped up at and they caught on to it and they went after her. <laughs> and that's what you have to do. You have, and if you're going to protect your, yeah. your intellectual property that way, if you, if you fail to protect it, you lose it. So you either use your rights or you lose them Mm -hmm. uh, over time. In any case, um, this is not an example, we would argue, of bad estate planning. Uh, It could definitely have been done better, but some of the fundamentals were done correctly. So correctly, in fact, that we can't give you as much detail about what the final distribution plan was, who gets what, as we would like to. So we in the many some of the cases we talked about before, Elvis being one of them, when they pass away and the money is not tucked into a, 
a trust already, then it goes into probate. Mm-hmm. Now, you can have in a will that you want the assets, you know, to go from the will into a trust, and that gives you some privacy and confidentiality because all the will, which will be publicly probated, people can read it, but all they'll read is that the assets that, that you owned at the time of your death are to go into this black box, this trust called, you know, Marlon Brando Trust. So really there there is no public information about what the contents mm-hmm. of the trust is. So in Marlon Brando's case, um, he created a living trust, which we've talked about on this show more than once. A living trust is something that you create while you're alive. You don't create the, the trust in the will, which is called a testamentary trust. A living trust is what's called, Latin phrase here, inter vivos trust. An inter vivos trust means simply a trust you create while you're alive. And you put assets in it while you're alive. So uh, Marlon Brando did some things correctly. Uh, he he formed this trust. He transferred assets into it that we can't tell you which exactly they were. We know he had a number of real estate investments, and one, for example, which is called the Brando. Yes, that's um. Talk and about that. That's in Tashora. So um, after he died, the island was still obviously very private. Nothing had really been. Um, you know, built on it or anything like that. And his executors decided that, hey, we're going to build, you know, a resort here. We're going to honor his name with this because he loves spending time on that island. And um, that's where they started, you know, building it. It's a beautiful resort. Um, It's a very high luxury resort, still very private. Um, We were looking it up earlier and it was quite expensive, but... (laughs) Justin, you didn't uh, make any reservations, did you, for your next... Uh not after I saw the price, no. <laughs> so what is the what are the prices? So uh, for I just looked up it was a single villa for two people for two nights and it was around nine thousand dollars and that didn't include flights that only included your breakfast. It didn't include any excursions. so man, oh man. <laughs> you have to get out to the island still. <laughs> Justin. But now your wife would be wowed by that. Uh, she's never been to the ocean before, so yes, very much so. Oh, well, you can probably introduce her for something less than that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> maybe Gulf Shores to start. Yeah, we'll start somewhere small. We'll <laughs> maybe 900 or 90. Shave a zero or two off. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, now this, incidentally, this comment about you, you call them executors. Technically, these would be called trustees, but very similar. Uh, but but the trustees are the people who run the trust. And you want trustees who make good decisions about investments mm-hmm. of the assets. So when you create a trust, you you name your beneficiaries. And, and we'll speculate here a little bit. I think that, that Marlon Brando, when he created this trust, he probably had provision for all of his kids. There's some discussion about there's a period of time when Christian was not named in a in the will. You know, in the will. So, you know, I, I suspect that there have been periods where father son, maybe father daughter, in places there were probably some rough spots. Uh, but we know that Marlon came to the rescue of his son and mm-hmm. supported him throughout and throughout the the criminal trial, etc. And I'm sure, in terms of his acting career, limited though it was. Um, so I, I think what Marlon did was he 
took these assets that he acquired, and he had several other pieces of real estate we know, and he moved those into the trust while he was alive. So this trust, this living trust, had assets in it already. But it's not at all unusual for people, maybe though some of you who are watching me now have trusts in place, and you've not put all your assets in it. That People often don't want to put like cars into a trust or or they'll figure, well, I'll just name the trust as the beneficiary yeah. on my stock, my security accounts, et cetera, PODs, transfer on death. So you can do that. You can simply have some assets go into the trust when you die. But but other assets, you know, they, they're not of that nature. And if you don't have a POD or beneficiary clause on that asset when you die, if it's not in the trust, it's going to go into your estate. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that are available for the public to view. And so while we couldn't, even then we couldn't get some of the information, we know that there wasn't nearly as much that that was in his estate. In other words, that was outside the trust so it could go into the estate as there was that was in the trust. Mm -hmm. So most of the assets we know are in the trust. So those we know nothing about, it's a black box. Uh, but my my speculation is that he named the kids as beneficiaries, mm-hmm. maybe some others. And those are the people who are getting the benefit now of whatever's being earned. And let me add this, too, is that the money that's set outside the trust, in your case, money that you don't have in your living trust, if assuming you have one, then that, when you pass away, if you don't change that, that's going to go into your probate estate. It means it has to be probated. It's not a total disaster, though. For example, in this case, Marlon Brando, he had a what's called a pour-over will. Mm-hmm. And as the name implies, if you watch this show, you know this, a pour-over will simply says, whatever assets are in my estate when I die or in my name when I die, then take those and dump those into my trust. Pour them over into my trust. So the nice thing about that is that it guarantees that there's a single plan by which you benefit your beneficiaries. You don't have something going on with your estate, maybe a trust you'd create in your will, which you could do that too. Um, You you could have a very complicated, inconsistent sort of estate, not to mention expensive in public. Mm -hmm. But in this case, if I have a criticism, it's that those assets that did go into the estate, they could have avoided that. And as a result, some of the litigation that occurred related to what was in the estate, Mm -hmm. not what was in the trust, because the trust was kind of safely tucked away at that stage. But anyway, the instructions in the will, according to Marlon Brando's will, he wanted his assets to go, whatever there was, to be poured over, poured over into the, the trust that already existed. So everything was operating according to a single plan. Except it's not cheap to do it that way because you still go through probate and it invites litigation, which mm-hmm. there was. There wasn't a lot of litigation here. Talk a little bit about kind of this little bit strange sort of change that took place in the will in the last 
days. Yeah. So in his last couple of days, everybody, you know, he died from dementia and um, pulmonary fibrosis. But the dementia wasn't, you know, a 100% certain thing. There were definitely signs. There was though. decline, but yes. he probably actually died from the pulmonary. Yes. Yeah. Um, there was definitely signs of that dementia because he kept telling everybody, um, after I die, padlock my room so nobody steals my buttons off my shirt. Um, so obviously that's not a normal thing for anybody to say. But besides that, I mean, even with people hearing that, um, his lawyer still visited him 13 days before his death and allowed him to make changes in the will. Um, it actually took out the trustees and named new ones. And it named... Uh, changed executors. Excuse me. Yes, That's changed okay. exec- executors. Um, and he named new ones. He named uh, Mike Metaboy and Larry Dressler and his friend um, Oliver Douglas. And, and what's interesting, though, is he replaced a couple of people who had been working with him for 40-plus years. Yeah, so Petra, his daughter, um, had been his assistant for quite a while, and she was one of the executors, and he replaced her. Um, and then the other was uh, his business manager, and he replaced him as well. And he had been with him 30, 40, 40 years. years. yeah. Yeah. So that's a little unusual. It really invites the sort of problem that did happen here, mm-hmm. and that was that this um, housekeeper partner, we don't know that there was a sexual relationship. We're not sure. Yeah, from everything I read, that it was just a very, um, it wasn't a romantic relationship. It was, uh, you know, just a longtime companion. She went from housekeeper to his assistant. Her name was Angela Berlaza. And uh, she claimed that he bought her the house that she was living in and said that she could have it after his death, along with almost half of the estate, Um, which Mm. I think that's a bit of a stretch. And she was stating that um, when he signed the new or excuse me, when he signed the will, um, he had this secret thing in his signature. And she was stating that the new will that he had made was a forged signature because he didn't have the secret detail in it. So he was going, there was a certain mark that would characterize mm-hmm. his voluntary signature or actual yes. signature. Yes. Uh, so, you know, that you can see that this is a train that was inclined to come off the tracks mm-hmm. whenever you have a lawyer that comes in at that stage. Now, let me be devil's advocate here. It may be that this discussion of dementia was not, you know, sufficiently severe or the this degree of dementia was not sufficiently severe to rob him of his testamentary capacity. Mm-hmm. So so you understand this, and I assume this is what his lawyer was thinking. I still think the lawyer didn't handle it correctly, but I think the, the lawyer must have been confident that though he may go through these periods of dementia, the standard for capacity to sign or to make a will is among the lowest in the English common law system. Um, it's it's intended to be the lowest because you, we want people to be able to transfer or decide who is to be the recipient of their worldly goods, that the things they've accumulated over the course of their life, they should be able to decide who gets that. And we should give them a pretty wide berth mm. to, to do that and not demand much of them in terms of mental acuity. So in this case, uh, the if it were true that at the time that the lawyer met with him that he was clear-headed, 
then certainly it would have been technically okay. The problem about being okay in the textbook sense and being okay in the practical sense is that it, it, it invites litigation. Yeah. Even though the lawyer may have been correct in terms of his mental condition, the lawyer should have anticipated that this was going to invite trouble and go ahead and do those changes in a way where you reduce the probability either of their being challenged or of their succeeding. And that could mean anything from more witnesses present to um, maybe a video, Mm -hmm. a video filming. It could mean that you put in what's called an interarum clause, which means if you challenge this will, you're going to forfeit whatever interest you have. There's a number of things that can be done to really discourage uh, people contesting wills. But but th- this setup that you describe, 13 or two weeks, we'll say two weeks, yeah. two weeks before he passes, um, when he's not real clear-headed, is just an invitation to... Yeah, and that's what I almost wonder is just if his lawyer caught him and just like, a very lucid moment where he seemed to be all there, but on the other hand, he was telling people to lock him in his bedroom after his death to protect his button. So I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm not too sure about all of it. <laughs> let, let me throw a, an interesting tidbit of information here. There is a standard in the American and English legal system for a capacity that's lower than that to make a will. That's crazy. You know what it is? What is it? To get married. Oh. Yeah. The, the, the notion is that marriage is one of these fundamental human mm-hmm. experiences to where we want to be very careful before we deprive someone of that. And some people might think in this era we live in today, a very secular era, that, well, why is it important? They can still have a, a, a relationship. They can have a sexual relationship. They can have kids. But if you view it from the standpoint of Western civilization for the last 2,000 at least years, if you were not married, you know, you were sinning in the eyes of God, and that that means that that door for that sort of relationship would be closed to you if you were not allowed to marry. So marriage is a big deal, and as a result, you can be as close to incompetent as we can imagine and still be able to marry. But let me I, – I, I, digress a little bit here. So back to the standard for testamentary capacity. Here's all that's required. You have to know um, who are the natural objects of your bounty. What that phrase means is you have to know who in the world would normally mm-hmm. be the people that would get your stuff, like mm-hmm. your family. Traditionally, that's the most important people. to. Yeah. So you know who the natural objects are. You understand you have some sense of the assets or of the extent mm-hmm. uh, and scope of your estate. Mm-hmm. You have some idea. I mean, you know, oh, I own some land. You don't have to know the details. You just have to know I own some real estate. I don't remember any addresses, but I own some houses, you know, in Cincinnati. So... So you have some idea of the extent of your estate, not details, but some appreciation. And then number three, you have to understand the nature of the transaction. By transaction, I just mean the nature of what you're doing. What you're doing right now is you're deciding who's going to get your stuff when you die. Mm -hmm. So if you think about those three prongs, the bar's pretty low. So he might have... he, he. I'm going to give his attorney the benefit of the doubt and say his attorney was probably technically correct, mm-hmm. but practically, I would argue, should have handled it better. But 
so we'll, we'll fast forward here. There was litigation that went on for several years. Yes. Yeah, a very long time, um, all the way up to 2013, and that's when the Madonna incident happened. Um, so the first one was with his son Christian, as we kind of talked about, was that Christian believed he had been actually written out of the will. Um, but him and his wife went to court, and they were trying to you know, say that it was forged and that he wasn't in the right mind. But it came to um, be found out that Christian hadn't actually even been in the original will. So he hadn't really been there in the first place. And then we had the Angela Berlaza incident where she was claiming that, you know, he left me this house, half of his estate, um, so on and so forth. And she was like, this is a forged signature again because of his state of mind. Yeah. Um, he couldn't have done this. And again, no. <laughs> See, I mean, he, uh, whenever you have a very complicated life mm -hmm. and you have lots of complicated relationships, multiple marriages, multiple kids, some adopted, some not. Um, it's really an invitation to this sort of of uh, conflict when you pass. Now, one thing let, let's make clear, as I suggested a while ago, a Christian could have had a place in the trust, mm -hmm. and, and that might have been the case, is that it just maybe wasn't as much as Christian was expecting. So this trust that, remember, was created years ago, had been in place a long time. Assets were transferred into it. Those weren't on the table at all in this discussion. What we're talking about, and when we talk about probates, we're talking about the dispute over mm. those other assets. And who knows? It could have been $10 million, Probably was less than that. But there was a significant amount of money that was not in the trust, and that's what's being fought over, mm -hmm. over these various uh, issues. And ultimately, there was a settlement, which unfortunately... That's often what happens. Rather than what is right prevailing, often because everybody is running out of money, or the estate's running out of money, at least, then then somebody settles. So sometimes you can have a bad actor or a bad claimant uh, who is who simply files a will contest, and it can't be frivolous, so it has to have some merit to it. But assuming it has some merit to it, it can cause a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. and, and often those people get paid off to just go away. And, and it's really not right. It's not right for the person whose will is being you know, enforced by the law. Yes. Supposedly. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's kind of what happened with Angela. They, um, she demanded the house or excuse me, they had already kicked her out of the house, but, um, she demanded 600,000 for the house and then 2 million in punitive damages. And they just settled with, I think she got around 160,000. Yeah. yeah. 160,000. That's a good example. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the punitive damages claim, it doesn't, <laughs> It yeah. doesn't sound like it has legs, but but the point is, um, you can avoid. You can never be utterly guaranteed there's no dispute when you die, but you can be pretty close mm -hmm. to guaranteed. I mean, if you do the right things, if you put the assets in the trust, uh, to the extent you're going to have something that's going to go through your probate estate, then you go ahead and and have a discussion with your children, for example. That's a common technique is let them know what's coming. Mm -hmm. That reduces dramatically litigation where they know in advance that this is what you intended to do. They may be angry about it, but there's no confusion that that's what you intended to do. And it's best not to wait until you're incompetent to have that conversation. Yes. <laughs> and is there anything in that sense that can protect you from that as you get older? And, you know, if you are incompetent, you can't say, hey, come, 
like I'm going to get my lawyer to come to me so I can change all of these things. Yeah, that that um, even though we don't have that necessarily no, like boundaries with that. No, you uh, well, there are things you can do, mm-hmm. but but that that particular problem you raise, it's difficult to protect against. It would mean that you go ahead and create an independent trustee for your trust, mm. and you make it irrevocable. And if you do that, then you know you're not in a position to make changes to it. Yeah. But it does mean you lose some control. So. Um, a durable power of attorney means that you give, it's a little bit of the opposite. Mm-hmm. It's where you give somebody authority to make important decisions, but it's somebody you've chosen and you give them the authority to oppose mm-hmm. people who might be doing things contrary to what you want. So uh, I think a durable power of attorney is a wonderful tool for someone as they feel themselves kind of slipping away. There's still the chance, though, that 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 you, if we're talking about protecting you, the aging person, there's still a chance that they could try to revoke their own power of attorney. So as long as they have the semblance, as long as they appear to be competent, they can revoke that. But once they're incompetent, then they can't revoke it. And the good thing about a durable power of attorney is the reason the word durable is added Mm -hmm. is that unlike historically powers of attorney, they expire the moment you become incompetent. But a durable power is really intended to primarily to be effective when you're incompetent. Okay. That's its purpose, uh, primary purpose. So a durable power of attorney can be helpful, mm-hmm. but but if you really had that concern that you're going to do something crazy um, on your estate planning, then an irrevocable trust could stop that. But it's a, it's a difficult thing to know when to do it because mm-hmm. the very point that you're utterly convinced you need to do it, you probably are beyond the point where you're going to do it. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm just thinking of, you know, I mean, Alzheimer's is it's genetic. Um, dementia yeah. is very common. Things like that. If you know that your family suffers from that, then is there, you know, is there anything to set up so that you can prevent yourself from doing anything? That's, that's a, that, that is a good example. Um, so, yes, in that case, that is one of those examples mm-hmm. where when someone has the diagnosis, then yes, I, that is practical to go ahead and create an irrevocable trust. And, um, and at that point, you've placed somebody in charge who you know and trust, and it could be a spouse even, but it could be an institutional trustee. But that, that's a little bit of a different, for us to talk more about that, we ought to schedule that to, to spend some time talking yeah. about what it would look like. But, but your point is well taken. When, when you do have a diagnosis and you know this is coming, yes, you can take away your ability to do something foolish with your estate planning, mm-hmm. which any of us could do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so sometimes you have to, while you can, protect yourself from yourself. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah. I mean, it's sad that we all, we all get there, but I mean, you have to think of the future. I, I worked in a hospital with older patients all the time who had sundowners and Alzheimer's and they would mm. be themselves for quite a while and then they would just have episodes and it's sad, but you know, if you can protect yourself from things and protect your family from all of that happening in the future, then I think that's a great thing to do. Yeah, yeah, and you raise another point that I want to to dwell on before we wrap up here is that um, getting back to the whole issue of of what what is incompetence, it's not unusual for attorneys who do estate planning to try to schedule meetings mm-hmm. with clients who are in those those cycles that you describe mm-hmm. the cycles when they're most likely to be have some clarity, yeah. and and that that's important because that's an example where 
clearly during these sundowner periods mm-hmm. or other periods, people can at that moment be incompetent, meaning they can't uh, appreciate those prongs I mentioned a while ago. But that same person in the morning may very well clearly understand yeah. those things. So whenever competence is being challenged, it's not a simple thing. You can't show that somebody was incompetent on a particular occasion and and stop and figure, well, that's enough for me to win the lawsuit to challenge this will. Because, you know, opposing party may argue mm-hmm. those who are proponents of the will are likely to argue in that case that, no, no, we understood there were times when they were not clear. That's the reason we scheduled this the way we did. So you yourselves, when you're doing estate planning, and your attorneys, hopefully, even more so, need to be thinking about how to execute, being signed, how to to complete the formalities of your will. And it's it's very ceremonial. You know, you have to have a notary present, two people who watch you, who observe you sign. So there's a ceremonial piece in order for it to be valid. Mm-hmm. But but your attorney should be very fastidious about assuring that that everything is in place to minimize the chance that there will be a successful challenge. Better still Put all your stuff in a trust, <laughs> yes. and and if need be, make it irrevocable, and there it's done, yeah. and it's private. Yeah. So, yeah, we so we'll wrap up it by saying that uh, you know Marlon Brando was a fascinating figure. Uh, he was a figure who I think had a lot of good intentions. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he made mistakes as a father over the years, uh, but he was a wonderful actor. We all know that. And, uh, and he left the world with a pretty substantial estate mm-hmm. that I think is going to take care of those beneficiaries, whoever they are, mm-hmm. and in whatever proportion they are to receive it. We don't know those details, but we're pretty confident the family, for the most part, is the recipient. Yes. Yeah. There. The only other thing um, in the will was that he had two female friends named who would get monthly payments. Um, I couldn't find their names anywhere, but other than that, it was all in the trust, all very private, and I assume it was the family because not many of them went to court for litigation purposes. Yeah. And, and remember, trust now can be done as dynasty trust, so this trust can go mm-hmm. on. This family can live off of him, good or bad, oh, yeah. can live off of him for a long time. Sometimes that destroys kids. Yeah. but <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not. But, but think of the power to do estate planning in a way that even if you're not rich, where you can have benefits flow to those you care about for more than one generation. Mm-hmm. And with a good rate of return on your investments and a good trust, it's not unreasonable for a relatively modest sum to confer benefits for a generation beyond your kids, maybe grandkids. Yeah. So those are legal now, the Dynasty Trust. That's a development that lasts 20 years. So anyway, interesting topic. Thank you for choosing Marlon Brando. Yeah, yeah. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.